You're listening to Sound Opinions, and later in the show, we're going to review the latest from Neil Young and from the group Salt. But first, we're going to revisit one of our shows from a few years back and talk about analog versus digital. Greg, I think that this this technology, digital technology, is now so ubiquitous, we rarely stop to think about it. I'd venture to say that everybody listening to this show is, uh, in one way or another, uh, hearing it digitally. Uh, maybe it's coming over the radio. Uh, maybe they're listening on the phone with a pair of earbuds. We are recording into a computer, and a lot of the music that we play here uh, was recorded digitally. Um, all of this digital technology certainly is convenient. But some people are asking, are we missing something that only analog can provide? That's the argument being made, Jim, by Damon Krukowski. He is a musician uh, best known for his role in Galaxy 500 back in the uh, late 80s, early 90s, as well as Damon and Naomi, his current band, uh, who have been guests on Sound Opinions. And he also spends a lot of time thinking about the intersection of digital and analog. Now, he explores that very subject in his new book, The New Analog. Damon uh, recently came by our studios, and we started the conversation by defining two key concepts in his book, signal and noise. The way I use noise in the book is the way an audio engineer uses noise, which is as distinct from what they call signal. So signal is anything you're trying to get across, the message that you want people to pay attention to. And noise to an engineer is everything else, which means everything surrounding that signal. Mm -hmm. And I think in analog space and time, just when you're with people, you're out in the world, you're always picking out the signal from the surrounding sounds, what you want to be paying attention to at that moment. And the rest may seem in your way, but in truth, if you think about it, you also derive a lot of information and a lot of meaning from the rest. So, for example, if you're on the street and you might be trying to listen to a conversation with your friend, you're simultaneously listening to a lot around there. You're listening to the traffic, you're listening to other people on the street. If we were on the beach in the Bahamas doing this interview, that would be part of, of the noise. Exactly. The surf crashing against the, yeah. the, the shore is a classic example. It's white noise, quite literally. In analog media, we have this joining always of signal and noise. And that's a technical concern for engineers who are making records or any other kind of recording, where uh, you may decide, okay, I want to maximize my conveyance of the signal, say a singer's voice, and minimize the noise, say, for example, the breath that the singer might take mm-hmm. or other sounds that might be bleeding into the mic around that voice, you can isolate things in digital media absolutely. So you don't have to accept a certain amount of noise around the signal that you choose. And I think this is familiar to anybody from any computer process. You don't have to be in audio to think about this. Because in, in digital, when way we use computers, you decide what you want, say you could, then you select it, Then you can select the rest of everything, highlight it, and delete it. And Mm -hmm. in audio, it's essentially that same process that that people might be familiar with from any number of computer devices. Well, you make uh, the comparison to the iPhone. Uh, You know, in in the book, there's three microphones on the iPhone. None of them are intended to make us be heard better. All of them are intended to take out where we are, basically, isolate just what we're trying to say and uh, from from where we are saying it. Exactly, which is why it's a brilliantly engineered device that you can now speak on the phone in the most noisy environments. And that's because they have the uh, engineers for the iPhone and for cell phones in general have figured out ways to isolate just the message of your words. I think the extreme example now is if you have an iPhone 
where you get a voicemail and it actually transposes the words for you into text. Mm-hmm. There, it's just eliminated the voice altogether, just like gave up on the voice, the yeah. sound <laughs> of the voice. Because yeah. the idea is, well, we know what the message is that you want from this device. Well, right. You want the other person's words. You want the meaning of their language. And so with tremendous confidence that I think the digital engineers have, they said, okay, well, then we'll just get rid of the rest. Now, the problem is that the rest may be very meaningful to us. For you know, like, As anyone who's ever tried to flirt on email knows, you can actually come across as doing the exact opposite and being insulting. Precisely, because tone is so hard to convey mm. through just signal. Tone, right. I think, is something that we understand as human beings. We're very good at it through noise, really, through how breathy are you being? Are you speaking to me intimately? And this is true in the, in the studio as well. What engineers, audio engineers call proximity effect it's a really simple idea, which is that I'm, I'm right now at a, a certain distance from this microphone I'm speaking into. As I move closer to the microphone, I'm not changing the level of my voice, but you're hearing it differently. And I think now I sound like a late night FM DJ <laughs> from my childhood uh, in 1975. <laughs> like they would speak really close to the mic because it, it accentuates the, the, the lower parts of your voice. Now, as I move further away, you'll hear the higher tones of my voice and you lose that bass quality. And I'm again, I'm not trying to change the volume of what I'm saying, but you'll hear a different quality. Yeah. Now, a great microphone singer like Sinatra he knew. uses that mm. to effect. And he knows that when you lean in, you start to feel more close to the, to the singer. And when you back away, you feel less. When I was 35, it was a very good year. It was a very good year for blue-blooded girls of independent means. We'd ride in limousines, their chauffeurs would drive when I was 35. The way we understand that in in regular life is, uh, again, it's a question of noise as well as a signal. So you're not just isolating the voice, uh, but you are allowing the voice to be seated in a set of other sounds that add some other kind of communication to it. Well, what about this idea of thick listening? You take us through a Beach Boys recording and talk about all the unintentional noises uh, that were in court. Uh, tell us that story. Right. Well, I use the Beach Boys as an example because of crowdsourcing online. All these people, untold uh, Beach Boys fanatics all over the world, listening really carefully to pet sounds and listening between the lines, as it were, to what's going on in the studio mm-hmm. while they're recording. Things like... Brian Wilson rewinding the tape in the, in, in the control booth or saying something. Uh, famous example is two horn players chatting in, in the studio while they were record- something else was being recorded. These sounds were buried into the into the tape, and they went ahead and used the mix either because with them in it, either because they didn't notice them, or because it didn't really matter, because the signal was clear enough. And yeah, there were these noises down there, but wasn't really going to get in the way of of a great tune or or also a great recording, because what would happen is 
in the analog studio, when you, you turn the tape on, everybody's focused, something happens. And if something slightly goes wrong, you may, you're kind of loath sometimes to throw the take away because you can't recreate that again. And you can't just highlight the noise and eliminate it like you could digitally now. So you have to live with it. So Brian Wilson lived with a lot of inadvertent noises that are buried in the Beach Boy recordings. In the book, I call listening for those noises thick listening because mm-hmm. I think you're listening past the obvious signal. You're listening to the, the noises that are also happening around it. And that includes writing, if you're listening on LP, the surface noise of your own LP. But then you're also listening to the hiss on the tape that was back in the studio. And you're also just listening to the air and the environment and the horn players chatting in the corner. Yeah. And that kind of attention is a special kind of attention that I think we, um, in the analog world, are very comfortable with and well-trained for. Yes, you're listening to the song, but you're listening to it surrounded by all kinds of other information. And by that, I, I would include the, the, the artwork to an LP or mm-hmm. to a CD yeah. as well. You, you, you make the most eloquent defense of liner notes that I've ever read. <laughs> and, and as writers, I appreciated that. You know, we don't know who the producer was. I mean, you, we don't know who the third string violinist was anymore. We hardly even know the members of the band. Yeah. Right. Yeah, because, um, you know, the front cover of records has made the transition to digital by being scanned and online everywhere. And reduced postage stamps. Yes, it's, it's, it's sadly small, but, it, but at least it's there. Yeah. But the back cover is missing. It's just gone missing. <laughs> Not to mention from the CD era, all those incredibly extensive liner notes. An example I think that I run up against all the time now is that cover songs are not clearly indicated on iTunes or Spotify or anywhere else mm. online in digital listening. So people now come to our shows and think that we wrote the songs that we covered. Mm. And we're routinely asked that. Oh, I love that song of yours, Listen to the Snow is Falling, which is yeah. by Yoko Ono. <laughs> <laughs> Listen to the snow is falling everywhere. You can't really blame them because they haven't been given any information. And, you know, I, I, I've been asked a couple times since I wrote the book, what do I think about Neil Young's idea of Pono and the sort of rumblings about uh, making digital sound better by adding more bits to it. And to some degree, I don't, I don't discuss that in the book because really I think there's so much more other information that we've lost besides a few bits. Yeah. You know, I would trade. I don't need to go to 20-bit, which is four bits more than CDs. I just want my back covers there's so much information there it's all right, like, all right, all right. Yeah. So it's time for me to play devil's advocate okay. damon we're talking to damon krakowski uh veteran indie rock musician author of the new analog um so so damon um one thing that's missing from the book is an argument uh, or, or any sort of notion about the discovery of music or just the, the value. You know, you talk about how your preferred way to listen to a ball game in the book is on a crappy old transistor radio, right? Mm-hmm. All right, and I'm sorry, you know, I, all right, I went to Pure Platters in Hoboken and I bought each Galaxy 500 album as it came out, okay? Thank you. But some kid in Montana discovers it by accident on Spotify. He or she has just discovered a piece of art. If 
nine out of ten people are just happy to have and consume this art, makes their day a little better, fine. But it's always going to be only one in ten that is so curious they will discover who you are, who you were, that you're a poet, a publisher, Naomi, your your, your significant other is a filmmaker. Oh, they're going to go deeper, right? Isn't that how it always was? I mean, I consumed every fanzine article written about Galaxy 500, but other people just said they heard it on college radio and said, oh, it's kind of cool. I hear you, Jim, and I, I totally agree. I think actually digital has made um, made a, a better world for listening in a lot of ways, and that's one of them. I mean, the way that our music can spread around the world free, cheaply, and be really available in places we could never dream of, to me, that's an ideal. I mean, that's actually a dream. We always wanted our music to be available outside our own circle, and then really, I think no musician doesn't want that because yeah. when you pick up an instrument, it's to to share. It's to it's have not your... completed until the person hears it. Exactly, and I think that's true for so much art. And so, in that regard, I am I am uh, all for it. I'm not anti digital at all, and I I use uh, digital files all the time. I listen to them too. It's also enabled us to travel places we could never have traveled before. Mm-hmm. We we toured China last year, yeah. and it was amazing because obviously we don't have a record distributor in China, mm-hmm. uh, but People knew the music just because they have access to online. But what's interesting to me, Damon, about what you're saying is, you know, to follow up on Jim's point, you know, there's this sort of proud dinosaur mentality. You know, I would talk to Ian Mackay or Steve Albini, and and they would say, you know, back in my day, you know, it was the old man when I was your when I was your age, kid, I used to walk five miles to school in the snow, yeah. <laughs> and it's the old, you know, to buy we, a used to, record. we used to make our singles by hand. We used to buy the cardboard yeah. and we used to fold them together and glue them and then put them in the stores. Now it's like you can go to your bedroom and and basically make a record in a day and have it distributed around the world. It's too easy. You know, a, a 21st century kid is going to look at you and laugh like you got to be kidding, old man. Uh, where do you stand on that? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that the the ease of digital is uh, can be really wonderful. It can also be very seductive in the sense that uh, you can fall into patterns of cliche uh, in a different way than an analog because you can end up relying on presets, for example, to your tools. I think part of what I wanted to, to achieve in the book as sort of a conversation starter is to, to make people think about what they're – what they're surrendering to these companies and who's making some of these decisions. Mm. To go back to that idea of signal and noise, in the digital realm, someone else has had to decide what was signal and what was noise in any given situation because they've programmed it or they've made the platform to highlight signal and they've eliminated the noise. In analog, you always have the choice. You're always shifting your attention and you're always making that decision. And I think we're really good at making that decision. So why have Facebook make it for us? Mm. Why have Facebook decide what posts we're interested in? You know, just put it all out there. Now, when digital is used in a more open way, where the information is freely available and, and unsorted by corporations, then I think it's the most fantastic gift, and I, and I fully embrace it. Anyway, we're, we're, there's no turning back. There's no choice. So we have to embrace it. And I just think we need to be a little bit more alert to what we may be surrendering without real compensation of mm. any kind, either meaning or financial in some cases. What do you tell the kid who uh, listens to all their music on, uh, through streaming? Uh, convenience and portability trumps all. What, 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 are you, what are they missing? What do you, what do you, you know, you're missing something essential, or do you say, have at it, kid, I can't, I can't tell you yeah, th- what to I, do? I would say there, that 
I listen to streaming too. I think that I get something different from streaming and I get mm. something different from records. I get something different from CDs too, for that matter. I don't feel that any of the formats uh, are um, should eliminate the others. There's a lot of music in the world that is also made now, currently, to be heard streaming. I saw a great interview uh, with a producer who's worked with Frank Ocean who was talking about how he mixes to you know these beautiful speakers that cost tens of thousands of dollars, way beyond anything I've ever had access to. A tornado flew around my room before you came. Excuse the mess it made. It usually doesn't rain in Southern California, much like Arizona. My eyes don't shed tears. But then after he's done that, then he mixes... And he listens on his PowerBook speakers, straight <laughs> off the PowerBook. As bad as it gets. Yeah. A tornado flew around my room before you came. Excuse the mess it made. It usually doesn't rain in Southern California, much like Arizona. My eyes don't shed tears, but body boy, when I'm thinking about you, who no no no. So I wouldn't say I wouldn't say to anybody you're not hearing the music, which gets back to why the number of bit rates doesn't really matter to me that much. I would just say be aware of what aspects you're hearing of the music and what you might be losing, mm. and then try it some other way and see what aspects you might hear then yeah. and what you might be losing. I do like a lot of people right now. I have gone back to a lot of my vinyl collection, but I'm also buying CDs like crazy because boy, are they cheap right now. Use yeah. CDs, all those box sets I couldn't afford in the in uh, the two thousands. Man, I'm just vacuuming them up because they've got the liner notes. <laughs> and the sound is great. You know, when, once people got a hold of how to master for CD, it was yeah. amazing. So it improved a lot. think there's going to be a CD revival the way there there is obviously a vinyl revival happening? I kind of doubt it because they're not beautiful objects. No. And, you know, I, and they're just plastic. And they do look and feel like junk. Yeah. Uh, but um, it's a little bit perverse right now, but I am buying them for the booklets almost almost wow. mostly cuz well they're easier to carry yeah nothing's as easy to carry as nothing you no, know that's true. which is true. We're, moving, we're moving to a post possession world yeah. or at the very best everybody's going to have that one ikea bookshelf where they have the 100 vinyl albums that define their life the two dozen hardcover books that's my f- you know i don't think this is a bad thing we got to stop killing this planet please you know, but but everybody should have the one IKEA bookshelf. That kind of sense of like investment in in a, in a, a piece of analog media. If mm-hmm. you buy a book, even if you don't read it, I had a great conversation with a, a used bookseller here at the Fine Arts Building yesterday. He was saying, you know, even if you don't read a book you buy, it's looking at you from the shelf, saying, <laughs> yeah. you, you could read this. <laughs> yeah, the unread book is something that you're not reading, but you could. And that's different than the streaming thing, where you're only getting what you're listening to. But you have a relationship with your own records and books. You use them. Mm -hmm. They bear marks of your use, as you're discussing. Mm -hmm. And I think that that deepens the relationship, uh, if you can talk about a relationship with an object, but it deepens the meaning of the object for you. Mm. Because it represents time spent and also change time. You know, there are lots of records in my collection where one side meant more to me than the other, and it's gone through different phases over time. Yeah. And that's the kind of thing that I think you need a physical object to really have that mm. to to bear the traces of of time and of your engagement with it. And that's that's something that I would say to the kid who is relying on digital. It's like that's great, I'd do it too. And you've got this incredible tool in front of you. You can reach any music in the world. Go for it. But 
also think about what it is to have something right in front of you and what, what, what else you get from that. And that might give you insight into the digital stuff and what you might not be getting from it. And so the we, best of both worlds. Be aware absolutely. that two worlds exist. Yeah, because they do. That's the reality. Yeah. We're, we're using both all the time. Yeah. We've been talking to Damon Krukowski, longtime indie musician and songwriter and the author of The New Analog. Damon, it's a, been a pleasure to have you on the show again. Oh, I love the show. I'm so happy to be here. After a break, we're going to spend a little more time on this idea of thick listening. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim Deergatis, and my partner is Greg Cott. We have been talking about the value of analog. We just heard Damon Krakowski discuss the concept that he calls thick listening. The idea that in analog recordings, there is extra noise or information within the song beyond the obvious signal that makes for a better listening experience. The example we heard earlier was here today from the Beach Boys Pet Sounds, where the process of analog recording resulted in mistaken vocal tracks, studio uh, commands, chatter from the producer, and even two horn players having a conversation uh, in front of the mics. All of that is audible, but only if you listen really closely. And taken as a whole, it gives you some idea of what the recording process was like. You feel like you're in the room that day. We wanted to find a few more examples where this extra noise or information enhances the signal or the song. Thick listening. Greg, you're up first. Jim, when we were talking to uh, Damon about this concept, the first song instantly came to mind was the Flamingo's I Only Have Eyes For You. I always think about a song that puts me in a specific place every time I hear it. And, and, and this is the best example that I can think of. I constantly return to this song. I love it. I hear new things in it every time I listen to it. It was recorded in October of 1958. It was a jazz standard. It had originally been a part of a Broadway play in the 30s. It was covered by many artists, many jazz singers. The Flamingos recorded it on an album of covers, which really is one of the, the great albums of, of that doo-wop era out of which they came, uh, a record called Flamingo Serenade. It was not originally even issued as a single, but it became the standard by which the Flamingos were really measured and became their biggest hit. I think one of the reasons it has become so timeless is because of the sound. That thick listening is, is rewarded immensely when you get into this record over and over again. It reminds me of a very sultry southern evening, or a, very, a summer evening for sure, uh, humid. The group was out of, out of Chicago, um, so they must have experienced some of those humid Chicago hmm. uh, summers. Yeah, we and, know them. And I think they evoke it very well. I can feel the humidity in this song. And, and why is that? I, I think a lot of it has to do with the reverb that they put on, which was obviously a, a signal effect. They intentionally were doing that. But in the process of creating this particular signal, there, the noise, quote-unquote, around it is so critical to the song, the way they sing and shape each one of those words. And the other thing that 
is remarkable um, is the way that Terry Johnson, one of the group members, shaped the arrangement. He's the guy playing those little guitar figures in the song that are sort of commenting on each line. And then there's this kind of throwaway, almost nonsense phrase. In in the hands of a lot of doo-wop groups, it probably would have been almost like a uh, almost a comical thing. Dubop shibop, you know, mm. like you hear that in a lot of doo-wop songs and it's almost like a cliche, but here it has this almost haunting quality. So there's, there's a sense of you can feel the room in this recording in a way that transcends every other version of the song. They were recording in an environment where the vocalists were all recording together. They were playing in a room together. And while the, the arrangement was extremely meticulous, there was just a sense of depth to the to the arrangement that I don't think anybody else has. Been, you you couldn't get it through a pure digital recording. Mm. But I not only feel the room, I feel this almost otherworldly place that they're recording it in. Um, so here are the flamingos. I only have eyes for you from 1958 on Sound Opinions. My love must be a kind of blind love. I only have eyes for you. Jim, what is your uh, first example of thick listening? You were talking about a song that evoked a world. My first song does that as well, but adds another element that Damon brought to thick listening, which is that the information on a great album cover, um, you know, is part of the listening experience in the analog world. I set off the bell on this show very often by mentioning this name, but it's rare that I actually get to play anything by him. I'm, of course, going to Brian Eno. 1975, the album Another Green World. Right there in the title, A World. He's creating an oral experience, an oral tour of this place that exists only in your imagination, the space between the headphones. Thick listening-wise, I loved to sit for years listening to the vinyl album and, and following Eno's liner notes. They're minimal, as his music and, and, and everything from him often is, but they were so evocative. He would describe himself as playing Castanet's guitar, right? <laughs> or, or Robert Fripp does a solo called Wimshurst guitar. Now, uh, he, he has people like Robert Fripp and Phil Collins contributing to this album, but the song Somber Reptiles is all Eno, 100% Eno. He says uh, on the liner notes he played Hammond organ, guitars, synthetic and Peruvian percussion, electric elements, and unnatural sounds. So the amount of time I spent as young Jim listening for, for what is Peruvian percussion, okay, and what unnatural sounds, well, they're all there. This is an instrumental. So you listen to this song, and you are suddenly in the tar pit 
with the brontosaur that is sinking slowly below the depths, right? There is this <laughs> prehistoric murky world that is created by the sounds. And, uh, you know, the sounds in Island Studio, uh, Eno was the biggest believer. I think this is very much in line with Damon's thick listening uh, of leaving happy accidents in. You play a wrong note, that was part of that time and place. The air condition kicks on, somebody walks across the studio, you couldn't have planned it any better, right? So there are layers and layers and layers to what at first sounds like a very simple song. You know, I'm not a hi-fi geek, but this is a song that is well served. Mm -hmm by thick listening and analog. Brian Eno, Somber Reptiles on Sound Opinions. Somber Reptiles from Another Green World. God, I love that album. Well, it's on my arm here. Yeah, what do you, you do. What, we've we've <laughs> heard you like that guy. All right. Yeah, I know. You do, too. But You're I'm, just I'm jealous. A fan. I'm a fan of those I records, too. I know you too. are. Uh, those are fantastic records. So the track I want to play next is the direct opposite of the one I'd played previously, The Flamingos, I Only Have Eyes for You. That is dripping in reverb. You can practically feel the sweat rolling down their brows on a hot summer evening. Uh, Matthew Sweet's Girlfriend, the title track from his 1991 album, is dry as a bone. No reverb at all. No effects pedals on the guitars. Uh, no synthesizers on the record. Uh, there's only one piano part on the entire record. We're going to record the whole thing on 24-track tape. So the signal part of this recording was very specific about what Matthew Sweet and his co-producer and drummer, Fred Mayer, wanted. Now, Fred Mayer had previously worked with Lou Reed on his great early 80s recordings, and through that, Mayer knew Robert Quine, the great guitar player, uh, formerly of uh, Richard Hell and the mm. Voidoids in the 70s, worked with Reed, obviously, brought him in as part of the recording. Two main guitarists on this record, Quine and, and uh, Richard Lloyd of Television, the other great 70s uh, guitar band, uh, contemporaries of, of Richard Hell and the Voidoids. Uh, on, on the Girlfriend track... It is Quine who plays the bulk of the guitar. And where the noise part of this equation comes in is that even though Sweet had a very specific idea of how he wanted this record to sound, he wanted to leave room for accidents. He wanted to leave room for the noise to inform how their final arrangement was going to work. So he created this demo, and he Quine initially, the idea was, okay, I'm going to play along with the demo and try to replicate what you did. And Quine was getting increasingly frustrated with his attempts to do that. So he ended up just playing this shrapnel busting noise <laughs> solo. Sounded like a trash compactor eating a truck or something. Yeah, yeah. Um, they decided, let's leave that in. That's kind of mm. cool. Mm -hmm. and, and they left in the bad guitar solo that Quine played. This has nothing to do with what was originally played on it's the demo. It's noise that became signal. Noise became signal and because of an accident. They loved what they were hearing over the phones, and they allowed it to happen. There, there was a, a part that he sort of introed 
where he would just hang on a note for a couple of minutes at a time. And normally you would just cut that out. He's just kind of getting warmed up. He's leading into the song, but that's not going to make the final cut. Well, they said, no, no, keep that in. That sets the tone for the violence that's about to happen. Mm. So Quan gets increasingly violent as the song is occurring. Mayer gets into it. His drumming becomes increasingly dynamic. And, and Sweet wanted to retreat from the, the drum machines and the very meticulous arrangements that he'd been using on his earlier records. And with Girlfriend, he succeeded totally in sort of balancing the signal part, the whole idea of this meticulous arrangement with the idea that accidents should be allowed and allow the, uh, the playing of the musicians to inform uh, the final arrangement. Here's Matthew Sweet's Girlfriend on Soundtrack. I didn't know nobody And then I saw you coming my way I didn't know nobody And then I saw you coming my way Don't you need to That is Matthew Sweet with Girlfriend, the great Robert Quine, the, the late, late, great late great Robert Quine on guitar. Uh, Jim, what do you got next? Um, Greg, you know, I am going to talk about a song by the Flaming Lips. I wrote uh, a biography, uh, Staring at Sound, about this band. A lot of great stories about the way they made these records. Uh, in a priest-driven ambulance, the 1989 uh, first, I think, unqualified masterpiece by the Flaming Lips. Many people forget that record. This is the earlier band. Jonathan Donahue, who would go on to form Mercury Rev, is a member of the band. Um, they were just about to quit. They were out of money. They'd been touring America for years. Nobody wanted them. Nobody loved them. Uh, you know, a hardcore, 50 people in every city, you know, in every small club they played. Uh, they were going to go out with a bang, though. They had met this crazy guy who was at the State University of New York in Fredonia named Dave Fredman. We must mention him a dozen times a year. He's one of the most demand in-demand producers in America today. But at this point, he's just learning how to use this recording technology. He's going to school and and he needs a band uh, in the summer at night as the experimental band. So the Flaming Lips go up to Fredonia and spend uh, from Oklahoma and spend a whole uh, summer there. And they are consistently pushing the envelope to get to a thicker sort of listening, ultimately. They are they are trying everything they've ever wanted to try in the recording studio. Wayne had written a song uh, that he wasn't quite happy with. It was a little acoustic ditty called There You Are, and he said, and I quote, it, it was a little too Dan Fogelberg. <laughs> so they decided, well, 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 let's take it outside. Let's record in the median of the New York State Thruway. You're from upstate New York, <laughs> yes. right? One of the busiest highways in America. <laughs> and let's record on the median at night under a full eclipse. This 
made sense to them yeah, for some reason. Oh, yeah. The idea of recording in the middle of the highway uh, fell apart because, and I quote Michael Ivins, the bass player, uh, the trucks kept running over the microphone cords. <laughs> so they had to go across the street in the back of a Topps supermarket, and they sat on a concrete retaining wall, and Fridman ran a dozen microphones. Uh, Ivins and, and Wayne Coyne and Jonathan Donahue were playing acoustic guitar, uh, but, but mostly they wanted ambient sound. So you still hear the trucks whooshing by on the throughway uh, right behind them. You hear the crickets. Uh, I swear you can kind of just hear the garbage in the parking lot almost, <laughs> you know. There is very much a sense of place. They wanted this noise, the ambience of the recording, every bit as key as the melody and lyrics of the song. There you are, uh, Jesus song number seven, the Flaming Lips subtitled it, from In a Priest-Driven Ambulance in 1989 on Sound Opinions. There you are And you stand in the rain And the rain fills your brain And it makes you think that God Was a cloud up When he made this town There you stand With your bleeding hands And you don't understand Why you work so much like home Flaming Lips, there you are, when the Flaming Lips still were the Flaming Lips, Greg. And we want to hear from you. Tell us how analog listening is part of your life. Call and leave a message on our hotline at 888-859-1800 or connect with us on Facebook or Twitter. Coming up, we're going to review the latest releases from Neil Young and the mysterious group Salt. That's In a Minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott. While recording, socially distanced, we're uh, the records have been piling up, Greg. Everything is a little harder to do these days. But at long last, we have got some new music to review. I won't apologize. The light shone from in your eyes. It isn't gone. And it will soon. Come back again. We go our separate ways, looking for better days. That is a little bit of the song Separate Ways, which kicks off the newly unearthed album by Neil Young, Homegrown. Greg. I don't know. How do you even introduce Neil Young? A living legend, all right? A giant at age 74. Seems like a million years ago. He was that guy in the buckskin outfit with Buffalo Springfield, came down from Canada, began to make his name, then as solo artist, then as Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young, giving us beautiful acoustic music that I'd put up there with Dylan and also rocking ferociously with crazy horse and then you know the million detours in this long and incredible career so neil is in going through the archives mode he's given us a couple of releases recently this is the most kind of focused album apparently recorded in late 74 or early 75 and then shelved 
and instead he released Tonight's the Night, inspired by the deaths of several friends and collaborators, people close to him. What was happening when this album was coming? He's living in the Chateau Marmont in Los Angeles. He has gone through a heartbreaking breakup with Carrie Snodgrass, and this album is in part about that, but, you know, there's never a straight line. What is Neil Young singing about? You know, there's 12 songs on the record, Greg. Seven were never released before. The others found their way onto different records in different versions. How did this long-lost oddity in the career of Neil Young, how did it hold together? Now we know. Here is one of the unreleased songs, Vacancy from Homegrown by the great Neil Young on Sound Opinions. Who are you? Vacancy from the new Neil Young record, Homegrown, a new old record, I guess, a record that was intended to come out in 1975, as Jim said, but never made it out in its original incarnation. You think about the five songs that have been sprinkled throughout Neil Young albums over the years. Those are pretty well-known songs, are great songs. Two of them are considered classics, Love is a Rose and Star of Bethlehem. Uh, that's a pretty good anchoring point for any yeah, record. Yeah, so yeah. you can't just dismiss this record as old news. It's got five pretty good songs on it that we already know. But now I guess the deal is you can hear them the way Neil intended them to be heard in the first place. This record is a listening experience designed to be documenting a particularly difficult time in Neil's life. And I think the fact that it was such a difficult time, he just felt he, he was too close to the album. It was too personal. Mm -hmm. And of the seven unreleased tracks, Vacancy, I think, is among one of the strongest and one of the best tracks uh, Neil has done. It's a paranoid song. It's a song yeah. about the disorientation and paranoia that he was going through in this particular time in his life. People say Tonight's the Night's a dark album, which it is. Mm. This record was equally dark, although it's deceptive because so much of it is acoustic and beautiful sounding. Uh, there are some very tough words here. I would say of the seven unreleased tracks, a good chunk of them are very, very good and worth hearing. I think the way the album starts off is, is terrific. Separate Ways, Try, those songs are great. There is a sort of a dead spot. In the middle of this yes, record. The, yeah, the spoken word interlude, Florida. Boy, I'm not sure about that. Like a town in Florida in the, in the 50s, you know? What was Neil's intent on putting well, this song that seems so yeah, yeah. out of sync with everything else around it in the middle of this record? I, I got a theory. Yeah. I got okay, a theory. let's hear it. There's no music, right? There's sort of music. There's Neil and his longtime uh, pedal steel player, Ben Keith running their fingers along wine glasses filled with different yeah. amounts of liquid. And then Neil's telling this story about gliders flying around the city, and one right. hits a skyscraper, right? And then you got to remember the sequencing, because Neil cares about how albums are heard. Well, He's sure. Taking you on a trip. So two songs later, we get We Don't Smoke It No More. 
Right. <laughs> and that's kind of a throwaway, too. That's a throwaway. He's bearing his soul in separate ways, in try. He's wondering if he's ever going to be able to make love on a sandy beach in Mexico again. Love is a Rose, which is on its surface a beautiful song, right? But Love is a Rose, but you better not pick it. It only grows when it's on the vine. So in between all this unusually for Neil direct talk of heartbreak and some angry vituperation (laughs) against uh, Mm. his his love, Uh, he gets stoned in the middle of it and he gives us Florida and we don't smoke it no more. You know, (laughs) that's how I hear this going. But you cut those two out. We don't need them. And this would have been a great, great album. Not quite as great as Tonight's the Night. You know, it's interesting to think of the sequencing, Greg. So he's feeling sorry for himself in the Chateau Marmont with the deaths that are chronicled in Tonight's the Night. He realizes, he comes like out of himself and realizes life is short. I'm sitting here feeling sorry for myself. There's other things that are more important. So I understand why this record got shelved, but I'm really glad to have it now. I would agree. It's one of the most fertile songwriting periods that he was just getting into. I mean, don't forget, after Tonight's the Night came Zuma. So technically, he put out three really good records in 1975. This one just took a little longer to come out. Don't shoot. Guns down. That's a track called Don't Shoot Guns Down from the new SALT record, Untitled Black Is. SALT, S-A-U-L-T, a British group that uh, seems to be trailed by this adjective mysterious, simply because nobody really knows who's in this group. We have some more certainty surrounding this third album in 13 months uh, by this group. I just did them as a buried treasure. Big buzz around this record. I recall the buzz that was around equally mysterious artists like The Weeknd and Rye about a decade ago. This seems to have a similar kind of life where people are finding themselves drawn to this music without really knowing who's making it. We do know that the UK producer Inflow is a big part of this record. He seems to be the fulcrum for this particular project. He's worked with a lot of people. He's a producer, a songwriter, Michael Kiwanuka, Jungle, Tom O'Dell, Little Sims. Uh, The keyboardist Kadeem Clark also plays a major role on this record. He's another Michael Kiwanuka collaborator. Kiwanuka himself appears on this record and is a songwriter. Some of the other songwriters on this record and performers, Cleo Soul, a British singer-songwriter, and uh, one Melissa Young, a.k.a. Kid Sister, who made a terrific record. God, when was that, Jim? More than a decade ago out of Chicago. We had her as a guest on the show. Resurfacing here as a key songwriter in Salt. Here's a track from the new Salt record called Hard Life on Sound Opinions.
to strive to be kind to yourself. Hard Life by Salt from the new album Untitled Black Is. What an extraordinary record, Greg. Unbelievable. 20 tracks. (laughs) I was thinking, this is way long, okay? But what would I cut? Well, not that one, not this. Nothing, nothing. Black is. What is black? What does black mean today? What does it mean to say black lives matter? Who has the right to say that? And the answers are multitudinous. At times, it's family. Black is granny. Black is safety. Black is angry. Black is full of possibilities. Black is disrespected. Black is demanding getting respect. Black is Malcolm X. That song, X, wow, what a great evocation and building on the often misunderstood teachings of that civil rights leader. You know, don't be surprised the chickens have come home to roost, Malcolm X famously said. Don't be surprised the chickens have come home to roost. That seems as true today as it did in the 60s. This album is absolutely vital. It's, it's nothing less than a masterpiece. Yeah, it's a staggering record. It's uh, To my ears, it's, it is the best record I've heard this year so far, and I can't see that diminishing much as the year goes on. No, and that's saying a lot in a year that gave us Run the Jewels, you know? Yeah, incredible. You know, you talk about Black Is. You know, this is black history. This is black music, the history of black music, Afrobeat, gospel, reggae, funk, soul, electronic music. This is a merger of all these different sounds and styles. Inflow does an incredible job of bringing together these disparate threads musically and then tying them together with this theme of self-empowerment and protest side by side. The historic sweep of this record, it doesn't feel like a musty retro exercise. It's very much a, a reading of history as a living, breathing, powerful entity that is informing our lives and is informing black lives and through that the world and i think the reach of this record is so wide it's not just a protest record it's not Mm -hmm. just about vulnerability it's about all of those things and what it means to be a black person and living in the world right now and for that matter being a human being we all know black is beautiful you know well now you do I think it makes a statement on so many levels. Musically, it sets a a new standard for greatness in 2020. And we're not even sure who they are. (laughs) One day we'll find out, I hope. And black is older than earth. All at the same damn time. Black is sweet. Black is ours. Greg, what do we got on the show next week? Jim, next week we've got a classic album dissection on the Velvet Underground's debut record, a true masterpiece. You can download the Sound Opinions podcast wherever you get such things. Sound Opinions is produced by Brendan Banizak, Alex Claiborne, and Andrew Gill. Ding-a-ling, ding-a-ling goes a telephone. Ding-a-ling-a-ling-a-lingle goes my heart. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So give us a call on our hotline, 888-859-1800. New messages. Hey, guys, this is Kathy Cassidy in Raleigh, North Carolina, and I just finished listening to your interview with Chris France, which was so great. 
and it brought back memories for me of when I actually got to see the Talking Heads on their Speaking in Tongues tour at the Saratoga Performing Arts Center in 1983, back in the day when you were allowed to bring stuff into outdoor performance venues like that. And the thing people would bring to SPAC was uh, inflatable beach balls and marshmallows. And I just remember that people were really into the concert. And then all of a sudden, David Byrne stepped back and said, now here's the Tom Tom Club. And Genius of Love was on the radio at that point. And the audience went bananas. And it looked like a blizzard of marshmallows and um, beach balls flying through the air. I just remember how insane it was. Thanks. Great show. Hi, Jim and Greg. This is Dan from suburban Chicago. I just listened to your interview with Chris France of the Talking Heads. Great stuff. I love hearing his insights on one of my favorite bands of all time. So I'd like to turn you on to an album that is Talking Heads adjacent. And that's a track-by-track cover of Remain in Light by the brilliant Angelique Kijo. She's a singer from the West African country of Benin. And when she first heard the album, she picked up on all the African elements in it. So when she recorded her own version in 2018, she brought in the Afrobeat drummer Tony Allen and gave it a full-on Afropop treatment. Thanks for a great show as always. Hi, my name's Mary. I'm calling from Durango, Colorado. And my favorite talking, not just my favorite talking head song, but my favorite song of all time is This Must Be the Place. And if you listen to the words of that song, just it's a wedding song. I can't ever hear that song and not think of two people joining together and dancing down the aisles to This Must Be the Place. It's so perfect. Thank you. This is Brooke calling from Greensboro, North Carolina. Just finished listening to your interview with Chris Franz. Such a great show. His book has been a ray of sunshine in an otherwise pretty dark summer. Um, You asked about favorite Talking Heads songs. Um, I'm thinking about a live version of Drugs, which originally closed out Fear of Music. But this version was featured on a live double album called The Name of This Band is Talking Heads, which had a bunch of concert footage that they recorded between 1977 and 1981. And man, that's fantastic. I mean, Drugs is just one of many tracks where I think their live versions kind of stopped their album versions in so many instances. You guys have a great show. Thanks.
No more messages. To share your opinions on Sound Opinions, call 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.